that work for you? I'd like to explore this evening with everyone here the theme of the Dharma practice of facing the challenges and crises of our time. Which requires Dharma music with which we will start. I wrote this song right after the last retreat. I'm hugely inspired by every single one of you here, and I'm honored to be in this circle. This is about the intention to be a bodhisattva, regardless of what's happening internally or externally, and how in, in community, in sangha, that intention gets furthered at such a much more rapid pace.
Thank you so much, Eve. So this is uh, one of those historical moments that we live in, which is probably doesn't come very much in human history. I think we know that this is a time of uh, crisis and opportunity. Some of you remember the old I Ching reading, the symbol for crisis is linked to the symbol for opportunity, for opening. There's a series of um, crises that are kind of coagulating, coming together at one time. And I think it's helpful to look honestly at them and to, in a way, see how our Dharma practice both can help us respond and actually is something that is incredibly uh, needed in the world as part of that response. About two weeks ago, I was at a gathering uh, in Petaluma, where also Larry was and Spencer was, and it was a weekend. And I remember at one point in one of the days that uh, I was there, there was the uh, question asked, form an image in your mind of what you can contribute to uh, a culture of democracy. And the image that came to my mind was of a happy army of bodhisattvas <laughs> that was walking together. Uh, and so I want to explore a little bit the challenges and crises we face, which I think are quite familiar to many or most of us, and then mostly focus on what are the uh, qualities, particularly related to what we'll explore in this retreat, what are the qualities which uh, we need to take these challenges and crises as our practice? And how does our practice help us face those, those challenges and crises? It's helpful to start by recognizing that, of course, the challenges and crises are large. They're vast. A lot of them have accumulated their energy over hundreds, if not thousands of years. It's not like they began yesterday. They may come into public consciousness at a certain point, but they have roots that go back a very, very long way, causes and conditions. There's a line or a series of lines in uh, an old play, actually, by Ibsen called Ghosts. And he talks about how the deadness of the past still influences the present. He says, I am half inclined to think that we are all ghosts, Mr. Manders. This is in the play. It is not only what we have inherited from our fathers and mothers that exists again in us, but all sorts of old dead ideas and all kind of old dead beliefs and things of that kind. They are not actually alive in us but there they are dormant all the same, and we can never be rid of them. Whenever I take up a newspaper and read it, I fancy I see ghosts creeping between the lines. There must be ghosts all over the world. They must be as countless as the grains of the sands, it seems to me, and we are so miserably afraid of the light, all of us. That was like from 1885. 
And I was thinking also of the questions that Larry Yang gave to us, in large part in relation to the question of multiculturalism in the Dharma and what, what kind of the, how do we work with that set of issues. And he asked us uh, to consider some questions which have to do with, in some sense, the immensity of facing the challenges. And he asked questions, the first one was in relationship to multiculturalism, and the second one was in relationship to the whole notion of awakening or enlightenment, which is also vast. <laughs> and how do we relate to that? Because I think having a sense of how we relate to vastness and largeness is really, really important. I'll come back to that. His questions were these. How do you relate to and address feelings of inadequacy that may arise when dealing with the subject of multicultural transformation, knowing that it is an issue that is probably larger than any of us for our lifetimes. It's vast. How do you relate to and address feelings of inadequacy that may arise when dealing with the subject of enlightenment, knowing that it is an issue that is probably larger than any of us for our lifetimes? Those are powerful questions. And they, I think, can help us when we look at the immensity of the social crises. Because I don't know if it's any deeper or more powerful than the immensity of greed, hatred, and delusion. And in fact, the historical crises are more limited in time. So just to name them, again, I think they're familiar, but it's helpful to see how what we're facing now is the result of causes and conditions coming down over centuries. It's not just something that arose yesterday or from 10 years ago. That the kind of economic crisis we, we face seems to have to do with a certain way that the levels of greed and self-centeredness have reached a certain point where the very structures start to give way, where the systems come into question. But they're very uh, old issues. You know, I was, I was doing some research and in terms of the economics, uh, this is what Thomas Jefferson said in 1816. I hope we shall crush in its birth the aristocracy of our moneyed corporations which dare already to challenge our government to a trial by strength and bid defiance to the laws of our country. In 1871, Walt Whitman spoke of how the self-centered pursuit of wealth would poison democracy. So they're very old and yet we can see, and we'll look at this more as we work with David Loy, how the institutions can be understood in large part and significant part by connecting them with some of the qualities, we might say, of the heart, that there is a certain amount of greed and self-centeredness. I think they're also, in all of these crises, they reflect older ideas, which I think also had some positive intentions. In fact, often many positive intentions. So I don't want to say that this is simply evil. 
or negativity only. I think there's a mix, but some of the limits and some of the ways that greed or self-centeredness have tended to dominate become very clear in some of these crises. There's also, I think, a crisis in terms of the growing inequality of the rich and the poor, the polarization. Some say that in our country, it's the greatest that it's been in a century. In the world, that's, that's very much the case. One writer that I've learned from a lot, Robert Bella, who, who used to teach at Berkeley, he says that the greatest ethical issue of our time is how we relate to the polarization of rich and poor in the world. You know, and we, sometimes it's hard to relate to that. Though those of us who've traveled, it makes, it's more real, or like what Hal was saying in the sharing on the altar, that very live connection, you know, that, that people have, but how this is another immense crisis. You know, uh, five or six years ago, I spent quite a bit of time with uh, people from South Africa, including um, a man named uh, uh, Blessing Finca, who was one of the commissioners on the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, along with Desmond Tutu. And he was talking very much about the crisis of AIDS in South Africa. And he says, would the world look away at this time? I think that question is very real. There's also a crisis of democracy in this country. I think we know that very well. The crisis of declining civil liberties and until recently, quite a lot of apathy, less in participation, lack of public discussion and an inability to deal with certain issues. Even in the debates, I mean, I don't know how you felt, but my sitting there felt a lot of the key issues just were not even looked at because it was not possible. And when I, I worked one summer when I was a student in the US Congress, and my dominant experience was everything was so political, and this was, this was uh, 30 years ago, that the politicians knew what the problems were, but they didn't want to look at them. They looked at certain issues, but the real roots of the problems they didn't want to look at because it was politically, for the most part, unacceptable or too difficult, or you had to come against certain taboos. And so there is that, there is that crisis. There's a crisis connected with the legacy of racism, linked very much to the polarization of rich and poor. And I think even though there's something very uh, powerful and beautiful that's happened with the election of Obama, I think we know that the roots of racism, the legacy and the residues still persist in all sorts of ways, you know, not just in this country, but around the world. And then of course, there, there's, the Christ, there's the ecological crisis, which, um, could make all the other crises look superficial, possible. And some very respected people have said that we have a very, very 
small amount of time to act. I think we know this, right? We know this, we read these accounts, and it's a lot. It's a lot to, it's a lot to take in. And so, how do we respond to this? How do we respond without being, um, being overwhelmed, losing our balance? Sometimes it seems hard enough just to um, act day to day and have our lives together, right? And we can get very upset you know, just about something quite small in our lives. How do we deal, how do we approach these challenges and crises and, and stay balanced and stay able to respond? Because it seems that the whole notion of a bodhisattva, that calling, which I think many of us feel very drawn to, we may call it something else, is really about responding where there's need. It's not necessarily responding to every crisis, but it's really finding our place where we, where we, um, where we use the fullness of our energy and we skillfully help to get to the roots of the issues. I think that's what brings us here. And so I want to look at five qualities that can really help us to respond to this set of challenges, this set of very uh, immense challenges. I didn't even mention wars you know, or, or, or violence. You, know, or you may remember that, that uh, famous quotation from, from King where he says, a nation that continues year after year to spend more money on military defense than on programs of social uplift is approaching spiritual death. And yet there's the other energy. There's the energy of renewal. I think there's the energy that can know that there are these also these very beautiful energies in this country, in the world, that come through in different ways. I think it comes through the dream of democracy, which which is, I think, always been a force in this country. It's been a beautiful force. It's that dream that King talked about. You know, it's a dream of connection and overcoming inequality and overcoming racism. And it's something that I think Obama tapped into that gives tremendous levels of hope because it's a beautiful dream. It's been subterranean for a long time. And so some of us, I think, including myself, have not even felt so connected with that. You can find it. I think it's been carried over the years by poets and musicians and visionary activists, different kinds of bodhisattvas. And I think it's gaining more life now. It's something that really, and I think what one of the great contributions that I think we can make is to help bring a deeper sense of the interplay of inner work with engagement. It's really a tremendous gift that I think we can offer both through our own person and offer the larger movements. And so I want to talk about these five, five qualities. The first is, has to do with the wisdom factor. 
of being able to hold the opposites together. And here I will bow to Yarrow, who this is her main teaching. <laughs> and she will teach later in our retreat on, on polarity. And it's a beautiful theme. But I think we, and I'll, I'll speak more about each of these. The first is the wisdom quality. The second is a listening for our own calling and our own vocation, how we can contribute. A second quality that we need to face these difficulties and crises, how do we each find our own gifts and our own calling to enter in with the fullness of our lives? The third is, uh, I use a phrase that Sharon Salzberg used in her book, we need, a, we need a heart that can hold the world. And in particular, related to this retreat, we need the ability to work skillfully with really difficult emotions as they come up individually, interpersonally, in relation to the world. And I want to talk a little bit about anger and fear, particularly, which we've named as some, uh, some of the areas we want to explore. And Adrian will talk more tomorrow, and we'll explore more tomorrow during the day. A fourth is developing a, a whole set of skillful means, a whole toolbox of skillful means. That's in part of the motivation for the program. How do we have a set of skills, competences, there are things that we can bring to situations, whether it's wise speech or working with conflict or communication or uh, working with difficult emotions. And the last I want to say, talk about, is a sense more and more, I think, it's certainly my experience as I mature, is that everything is practice. That our lives become more and more dedicated to awakening, which is immense. And that everything becomes part of practice, the beauty as well as the difficulties. Tibetan Lojong teaching says, turn all obstacles into the path of practice. Turn all obstacles into the path of practice. Not so easy. Sometimes I want to turn all obstacles into your problems. <laughs> Their problem. They're the cause. So, so the first, the middle way of wisdom that helps us to hold the opposites. And I thought I would start with reading two very powerful quotations, which kind of express one way of holding the opposites. The first is about the vastness of what we're dealing with. And the second is about the need to, to really have a way of dealing with everything in a very practical way. It's kind of on the one, holding the vastness. On the other hand, finding ways to be very, very practical and uh, really in the moment, in the situation. So this is from uh, June Jordan, who used to teach at Berkeley, poet. And this is from an essay that she wrote on Martin Luther King about 15 years ago. This is about the vastness of what we're, we're up against. Anytime you decide to take on a mountain, you just better take care. It's not about running out of the house. It's not about come as you are. It's not about breaking down that mighty miraculous fact of the earth into little pieces or clumps of dirt 
that you feel you can comfortably deal with. Anytime you decide to take on a mountain, the irreducible is that you're taking on something mysterious, something huge, something more enormous than you can ever hope to hold between your hands or even between your ears. Something mysterious, something big, something that we often can't understand, and yet we keep on with our practice. And the other side is how do we also make it very practical at the same time that it's vast. And this is also from Larry Yang. I'm giving him some advanced publicity. And he was talking about his work in developing multicultural trainings. He said the intention in developing these trainings is to break down the concept and experience of oppression into some salient components. The invitation offered is to begin by transforming a piece of oppression rather than being intimidated by the vastness of suffering. That's really what we do in our practice. We can hold the vastness and the mystery, but we say, okay, it's vast. Let me deal with what's right here in my experience right now. If I'm feeling despair about the vastness, I can work with the despair. Or I can say, what's my next step? And I can watch about getting lost in the vastness. Somehow, this is a polarity that we have to hold both together. We have to hold both vastness and complete practicality. Is that easy? It's something, actually, I was thinking about this, that in my own life, and particularly in doing something like writing, that's a polarity which I hold completely. You know, and I find that, and it's something when I work with people in writing, it's something that I really want really work with people on. Because a lot of times the writing is, how can I, a lot of times my energy, especially when I was younger, was how can I find the big vision, the big picture, and get hold of it? And there's really tremendous energy to do that. And yet it's very easy to go for the big picture and, get, and not have any practicality, not be grounded, not be down to earth. And I found over time that what was really important for me was to keep on looking for the big picture, but find practical ways to advance it day by day and year by year. Does that make some sense? You know, that balance. And, and sometimes it means we may have to go more to one side or the other. Are we too caught up in the vastness? Better get more practical. See what it means more practically. Are we too practical? Do we lose the big picture? Then we need to look there. And so that's one of a number of polarities which we have to hold somehow and have this ability to walk the middle way and look out for getting caught in one end of a set of polarities. And I think we'll, we'll leave it to Yarrow to explore that in more depth. But it's an amazing way. It's really a way that we can consider the whole of the path of the Buddha is talked about as the middle way. And it's an attempt to avoid getting caught in extremes, but to see things as holding polarities and finding ways to work with them. You know, in meditation practice, we work with the polarity of incredible effort, but also letting go. How do we do both at the same time? 
We work with concentration and openness, focus and openness. And a lot of our meditation practice is learning how these polarities actually look in our, in our moment-to-moment experience. So the second factor I want to remind us of that's incredibly crucial for facing these challenges and crises is that listening for our own calling, our own vocation, is totally crucial. Listening for that voice, and I heard as we were building the altar, several people use that language of finding one's calling. Finding where one is called. And part of the motivation of this program is to create a container where we might listen more carefully and feel that pull that lets us be more and more fully engaged with all of our gifts. And it's not easy that in my own uh, teaching and working with people, activists and people engaged in the world, there's often confusion. And And I don't know if that's the case for very many of us here, but I find a lot, I don't know what to do. You know, I feel like I really want to help, but I don't know what to do. And we can get very, very guilty, and we can think we need to do everything. We need to re- I mentioned like six or seven crises, so we may think if you're not responding to all six or seven at the same time, then there's something wrong. You should feel guilty, right? You know, and do you know that those voices? You know, I'm not really doing enough and so forth. And there's something about this uh, listening for one's calling, which is really, really crucial. And I know that many of us here feel that calling and have heard that and, and are actually listening more carefully to refine that. But it's really, really crucial. I love the wonderful line from uh, Howard Thurman, you know, who was a great uh, teacher who set up, I think, the first, one of the first multiracial churches in San Francisco, in the Bay Area, and was a mystic and theologian and not very well known. And he said this, someone, a young person asked him, what should I do? And I think this was at this uh, another moment of crisis like the 1960s, asked him, what should I do? I should be doing this, shouldn't I? And he said, don't ask yourself what the world needs. He was an activist saying, don't ask yourself what the world needs. Ask yourself instead, what makes you come alive? And go do that because what the world needs is people who have come alive. I think this is what we cultivate in our practice. In a way, we cultivate this quality of listening, moment after moment after moment. That's why we sit quietly. That's why we need to drop the busyness and, and learn to listen. You know, some of you know, I don't think we have an image here, but at my home I have an image of Milarepa, the great Tibetan yogi. And you know how he sits in the wilds, and you know how his, what his gesture is? It's like this having his hand to his ear to listen to reality, to listen to nature. And it's an incredible image. Kuan Yin is she who hears the cries of the world. So this quality of listening is something we cultivate when we just sit and we we get a sense of what's really going on. And for me, it becomes so crucial to keep this quality of listening going so we can actually know what's there rather than the conditioning. 
one of my teachers in the area of psychotherapy talks about there being an organic self, which actually is what the child can experience, which is alive and which gets covered over and forgotten and fragmented, covered over by wounds and conditioning, and how the project of deep psychology or deep spiritual practice is to come back in touch with that deep organic self, if we want to, if we want to use that language, that can really listen to what's there and know that. I know for myself, I need to have a lot of quiet to do that. And I need to know the voices that masquerade as the organic self. Like the voices that I've been conditioned to have, maybe from family or from society. And that's a big part of our practice, is to make that distinction. I think we know that. And so this quality of listening, to find out who we are, to really touch what's deep in ourselves. Camus said that we want to listen and we want to listen and have the space for the images to come up that were the images that appeared when our hearts first opened in the world. And let those images and that those feelings guide us. And somehow to be in touch with them, to renew and to keep coming back and to be in touch with what really motivates us, with what really calls us. And it's not easy. You know? I know personally... I try as much as I can to do a once a week Sabbath. And I know what happens when I don't do that. The last few weeks getting ready for the path engagement practice, I let go of my Sabbath for three weeks. Bad state. <laughs> Not so good. Um, some of the people around me, I, you, probably, you, you, know, you may have noticed. But, <laughs> but it's really, really crucial. I feel like we almost have to keep letting go of all the stuff that accumulates. Maybe that's like what we're doing with our society. Stuff has accumulated. Crises accumulate, accumulate, accumulate. And we need a social Sabbath. Something like that. Something to let us look deeply and just stop doing things. Stop doing things the old way. A third area that's really, really central is the ability to be with, the, with difficult emotions. Part of what we know as we do practice is that the crises and challenges of the world are not somehow out there caused by other people alone. There are leaders who have significant responsibility, to be sure. And many of them should be in prison my view, if they've committed crimes. But we also know, if we just think of some of the crises I mentioned, economic crises based to a significant extent on greed, ecological crises, racism, polarization of rich and poor, we know that we're connected with those crises and we know that we have some of the conditioning, a lot of it, that's behind those crises in ourselves. And that could be the basis for despair. But I think it actually is a basis for hope 
and a way of working with things because it means we can work on all of this. We can see where the greed is in ourselves. We can see where the fear is. And we can get to know it so well that we can see how it manifests in groups or communities or socially. And we can know the dynamics. When we study how to transform anger or fear or greed, we know something very, very deep. Because I truly believe that the principles of transformation are the same in the individual as in the group or the society. And so when we do our inner work, we learn about how to apply these to the world, to the society. And we know that we actually have to do both. This also helps us not to polarize so much between us who are self-righteous and those evil people. Because we know that the causes of the crises go right through our own very minds and hearts and bodies. And so we can act on it without necessarily thinking that the problem is out there. That's pretty big. To me, that suggests a whole different kind of culture and a whole different vision of how we act. So we'll talk a little bit more about anger and working with anger tomorrow morning. It's very, very central, I think, to the work of these times to really find ways to transform anger and work with it. Gandhi said that anger controlled and transformed can be transmuted into a power which can move the world. King said that the supreme task is to organize and unite people so that their anger becomes a transforming force. And we'll explore that more tomorrow. I want to say just a few words about fear, and Adrian will also explore it. It's very, very central in our times. And an ability to work skillfully with fear seems like one of the core abilities that we need at these times to work with fear. Aung San Suu Kyi says that the only real prison is fear and the only real freedom is freedom from fear. And it's very widespread in our world. I want to quote from someone whom you know, George Ann. And rather than read her quote, I want to do a kind of quote that's not usually done, which is to have the quote speak for herself. <laughs> this is about how widespread fear is. And also just not about how widespread it is, but how it's used by seemingly everyone to manipulate us. And I listened to the TV and the media for about a week and wrote down everything that was a fear message. And I painted it on my camper. <laughs> and this is what it says. Be afraid of liberals, of conservatives, of corporations, of environmentalists, of guns, of gun control, of allowing abortions, of banning abortions. Be afraid 
of wrinkles, of SARS, of strangers, of killer bees, of bad credit, of the weather, of pit bulls, of mold, of computer viruses, of low consumer confidence. <laughs> Be afraid of terrorist attacks on airplanes, buses, subway trains, the water system, schools, nuclear power plants, commercial trucks, the food distribution systems, tanker cargo. Government buildings, financial institutions, national monuments, sports stadiums. Be afraid of bad breath, of the sun, of weighing too much, of weighing too little, of the bird flu, of high gas prices, of a recession, of crime. Be afraid of weapons of mass destruction, of terrorists, of losing our individual rights, of illegal aliens, of mad cow disease, of identity theft, of development, of no growth, of homosexuality, of split ends, of shark attacks. Be afraid of losing your things, of getting older, of dying. And then because I didn't want to leave my camper on such a low note, I added underneath it a quote from Hafiz which says, fear is the cheapest room in the house. I'd like to see you in better living conditions. <laughs> and that quotation is found on her camper. <laughs> so, thank you, Georgianne. And yet we have tools to work with uh, the fear of bad breath. <laughs> or lack of consumer confidence. For any of the fears, and again, uh, Adrian will be exploring it more, but we have these set of tools. We have ways of finding balance when we're caught in anger or fear. We have the practices of metta. We have ways of coming back to balance when we get lost. We have ways of going into these difficult energies with mindfulness, with inquiry, facing the fears, facing the anger, transforming them. <coughs> we have ways of developing greater wisdom, of seeing more clearly where the fears come from, what the origins of anger are. We have many, many, many tools to work with these difficult these difficult experiences. And those tools are really part of this, this fourth area I wanted to say is that we really develop this toolbox as we practice. And I know part of what we're doing here is getting a, a greater toolbox, a bigger toolbox. We're getting these tools to work with difficult emotions. We're developing tools of wise speech, working in groups, various kinds of communication, working individually with difficult states, getting more experience of how it can work in a community. We'll be looking this weekend with David Loy at developing ways to see the world with uh, Dharma eyes, through the eyes of our practice. 
And I think we're really wanting to have this set of tools be, be offered, be developed for the sake of our engagement in the world, knowing that we need very skillful means to work with the situation as it is, to face these crises, to face these challenges. The last thing I want to say is that I think as we bring our practice more and more and stay in, in a sense, the fire without getting burned is one way to talk about what we do. We stay in the fire without getting burned in the usual ways that there develops a sense of persistence, of really a kind of commitment that just stays there, just like in the song by Eve, that we have that one intention and we stay there more and more and have balance whatever happens. It's a very challenging vision. And I know for myself, it's hard when there are difficult experiences, when There are difficulties emotionally, economically, interpersonally. It's very hard to just keep on going. But what I found one of my learnings is that I actually have really come to, I was going to say enjoy, but really appreciate difficulties. Because actually difficulties wake me up. That seen in a certain light, difficulties can be tremendous energy for fuel, for growth. I think there's a place in our practice where we need to stabilize and heal and come and not deal with so many difficulties and get some sense of solidity and well-being. And I think that's a very important phase of practice and sometimes a phase at a particular moment of our lives. At other times, I think we're actually able to take on more and to take on challenges and actually come to see that we can actually keep learning from them as we looked at last retreat, that conflicts can be places of tremendous learning and growth and expansion. And I've been appreciating lately having certain challenges, how when I actually stay in there, even though it really often feels really yucky, that something comes through. And I find when I don't have challenges, I get somewhat complacent. Even though I practice a lot, I do a lot of stuff, that the challenges actually draw something out of me that's deeper. And one of the qualities which I have found coming into my own being more is a quality of just having this sense of there is only, like your song, there is really only one path, which is the path of awakening. And that's something that I hope gets nourished more and more as we stay in this program, as we do this practice, that we develop a kind of confidence It's really kind of a confidence and liberation. And it's actually very, very important for our practice. It's not a beginning quality, but that we get more of a confidence that I can, it's a personal confidence to be able to be with what's there. It also maybe can be a quality of equanimity and balance that I can maybe see these crises with a long view, see that these took hundreds or thousands of years to develop, and then I'm part of something much larger. I can have this very large sense which can help me stay balanced and do fully what seems to be the right thing to do, to have a long-term perspective, to be in touch with the mystery of how things develop, and to have a quality of uh, 
continued energy, even in difficult circumstances. Cornell West has a recent book that came out which is called Hope on a Shoestring. And that quality of hope is something that I also found one of my favorite quotations is from Vaclav Havel who, who wrote this, I think while he was in prison. He wrote about hope and he distinguished it from optimism. He said optimism is the belief that this or that outcome will be like I want it. Hope is something much more deeply rooted in our being and our soul. He said this, the kind of hope I often think about, especially in situations that are particularly hopeless, such as prison, I understand above all as a state of mind, not a state of the world. It is a dimension of the soul, and it's not essentially dependent on some particular observation of the world or estimate of the situation. Hope is this deep, in this deep and powerful sense, is not the same as joy that things are getting well or willingness to invest in enterprises that are obviously headed for early success but rather an ability to work for something because it is good. To work for something because it is good, regardless of how it turns out. Now he was saying that in very difficult circumstances. And there's something about that energy, which I think is the energy of a bodhisattva, that just Suzuki Roshi once said, even if the sun rises in the west, the bodhisattva has only one path. And I think it's that kind of confidence which we're building. And it's a hard process. Ultimately, there's a kind of, I think, a kind of a smile and a kind of a, a wink that has something of that air of paradox that, again, I'll bow to Yarrow. I think it's an ability to hold these both sides. Too much praise. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. But it's a sense of somehow holding both the sense that things are very, very hard and that liberation is real and possible. And I think what we learn from our practice is that actually liberation is the deepest thing in the universe. That love is deeper than sadness or hatred. That's what we learn in our practice. And I think it's that confidence in that which we really continue to develop in ourselves and then bring out into the world. And we continually lose it. And then we find it. Just like the country has collectively lost that hope and now has gained it, I think. And it's still an ongoing, ongoing journey. So I want to close with uh, another one of my favorite readings. This is from Vandana Shiva, the Indian ecological activist. She was asked, Every time I've heard you speak or met you, and the interviewer asked, you've had so much energy, not only intellectual energy, but personal or spiritual energy. What keeps you so alive? Her answer, well, it's always a mystery. But she goes on. <laughs> because you don't know why you get depleted or recharged. But this much I know. I do not allow myself to be overcome by hopelessness, no matter how tough the situation. I believe that if you just do your little bit without thinking of the bigness of what you stand against, if you turn to the enlargement of your own capacities, just that in itself creates new potential. I've learned from the Bhagavad Gita and other teachings of our culture to detach myself from the results of what I do because these are not in my hands. 
The context is not in your control, but your commitment is yours to make. And you can make the deepest commitment with a total detachment about where it will take you. You want it to lead to a better world and you shape your actions and take full responsibility for them. But then you have detachment. And that combination of deep passion and deep detachment, also the paradox there, allows me to take on the next challenge because I don't cripple myself. I don't tie myself in knots. I function like a free being. I think getting that freedom is a social duty because I think we owe it to each other not to burden each other with prescription and demands. I think what we owe each other is a celebration of life and to replace fear and hopelessness with fearlessness and joy. So I'll stop there. Thank you. Let's just sit quietly for a minute or two. We have a little time for discussion or questions if there are any. And I think we'll use the, the handheld mic. We'll just do a short time. I wanted to have um, things be interactive. Um, so some of the... Uh um, emotions that were more pointed into this evening are things like fear and anger. And the one I get lost in is uh, pain and sorrow. Yeah. Um, can you address that just a bit? Yeah. Yeah, that list is not <laughs> comprehensive. Not <laughs> uh, and I think we'll be addressing it some tomorrow because what personally I find is that the practices to work with difficult emotions are quite similar. And I found, I, I did some teaching last, uh, I think it was last winter, on working with difficult emotions and thoughts. And, I, and they're, they're actually on Dharma Seed. You can listen to them. It's not an official advertisement because there's no, there's no income actually. <laughs> but um, what I found in doing that teaching over a few months was that there were very, very similar practices that really are at work with all of them. And I, I went over them very briefly in the talk. And I think Adrian's going to go into more depth tomorrow. But I found, for example, that I found, I found myself using an acronym called MIWA, M-I-W-A. I kind of like the resonance with the Coast Miwok, but 
didn't, wasn't intended. That MIWA, M-I-W-A stands for mindfulness, investigation, wisdom, and antidotes as a way to work with difficult emotions. And of course, we, we had a whole session, I think Adrian and I, at the last retreat where we also looked at this. Antidotes are often necessary initially when we're out of balance. And so if the sadness or the pain is leading us to be unbalanced, then I think we often need to find balance. If, in other words, if, if we're out of balance could mean that we're, that we're just caught in a story that's repeating itself over and over and over again, which is very, very common. In all these difficult emotions, the, one of the hard aspects is that there are repetitive stories. Fear is like this. You know, fear is we repeat the same story over and over and over again. So a key, uh, a key starting point often is just to get a little bit of distance from the story so it doesn't rule us so much, or, or so the pain is not overwhelming. And for that, I'm calling that antidote. And that could mean, you know, meditative practice often would be metta. Metta was designed by the Buddha as an antidote to fear. It might be simply to take a break. It might be to connect with nature or just simply to bring out. Sometimes we think I just have to be with this and get through it. And sometimes that's not skillful. So antidote is often helpful when we're very vulnerable. Use an antidote. You know, I often, for myself, if I'm finding myself, my mind just carried away by something, especially if it's the middle of the night, right? I say, this is not a good time to try to be mindful. It's just a time to shift the energy. And that, that I'm calling antidote. When we're somewhat balanced, then we can use mindfulness then we can use mindfulness and inquiry and wisdom. Then we can use our meditative tools, our reflective tools, interacting with other people. And of course, one of the antidotes might simply be to talk to a friend. I mean, I'm not saying, obviously, just meditative tools. And so uh, the mindfulness is what's going to lead to the wisdom. Antidote is good in the moment, but it doesn't uproot the roots of the delusion or the confusion. So we need to use mindfulness and inquiry to get at those repetitive stories, to see them, to open to the pain, to be able to touch the pain when we have some degree of balance. You know, and I love the practices that I introduced at the last retreat of using the body as a main way to work to get out of the stories, to shift the energy. This practice I call the dropping down practice is amazing practice, you know, of moving from the stories to the body and the heart and investigating. And so we can also bring in the wisdom factor as well to reflect on the situation. So that's a short answer, but I think that the dynamics of working with this are quite similar. And of course, the different emotions will look different and they'll be, have different histories. Yeah. Thanks, Yurit. Maybe take, take uh, these three, and I think then we'll, then we'll, I'm just doing this for a short time, but then we'll move to a walking meditation. In terms of um, working with opposites, yeah, and this may be way too big a question given the time, but um, the Buddhist teachings on emptiness would seem to be, for me, of great use. And your thoughts? With, with uh, in terms of uh, opposites, there are no opposites if you with consistent with as I'm beginning to understand emptiness. Yes, emptiness is form. Form is emptiness. Those are opposites. Yeah. 
They're both empty. Next question. <laughs> Is that satisfactory? Oh, that's good. It wasn't intended to be. <laughs> yeah, no, yes, it was. No, maybe not. Okay. Um, well, I want to just thank you. That was a really, really helpful talk for me, thank and you. it really expressed a lot of what I've been thinking about and feeling. And, um, just made me feel, I don't know, less alone somehow, yeah. to, and uh, especially yeah. addressing the fear. Um, and I've been uh, been able since I've gotten here to, to tap down a little more deeply into into what has been so scary um, in me the last few months, few well months, I guess. But um, and I, I'll try to make this short because it, it is a question, but just to, to set it up that. Um, I began to feel like in the Bush administration that we were in the hands of forces that were really uncontainable and unharnessable mm. in a way that was very frightening to me. And so as the election got closer and closer, mm. instead of feeling excited, I felt more and more frightened of mm. what the, they were going to do. Yeah. And I kept thinking about the Holocaust because it's the only time in recent history that I can relate to it all when, when it could have, when it was, it must have been so incredibly frightening, you yeah. know, to just feel your whole culture just going down this, you know, unstoppable, horrible place. And um, so I really have been dwelling a lot on how, how do you deal with that level of fear, you know, when yeah. it really may be that things aren't going to turn out okay, you know, and that it really is going to just get worse and worse and worse. Mm-hmm. So um, the whole idea of, of hope, and I'm a, pre- I'm a very hopeful person, I really mm-hmm. am, and, and it was frightening to me to feel how, how my hopes seemed to really be shattered, mm-hmm. and I couldn't pull it, pull it up, you know, yeah. and, and get on board with the, the Obama hope wagon, yeah. even yeah. though I'm thrilled now. So I just wonder what you would say about thanks, that. Thanks, Betsy. It's, it, it's a very deep question, and I'm just going to uh, give a short response, and then we can we can continue to look at this during, during our time here and beyond. Um, I think it actually relates some to also to Richard's question, which, which, uh, which is that I think really looking carefully at the stories we tell is really, really crucial and something that our practice can help tremendously in. Because a lot of the ways that we move into despair are because we get caught in a certain... Um, story. And we don't always know whether those stories are true. And so that's very, very crucial. That's because I think what is difficult about fear is when it paralyzes us. Or when we, when we don't know that we're actually afraid, when we're delusional about it. Mountain climbers work with plenty of fear they say that the most dangerous person is someone climbing with them who is not afraid. So that's one point, is to really be careful about the stories and to work with it. And I think there, there so to be careful about really, um, yeah, really doomsday scenarios. That there, you know, there, that we have to somehow make interpretations. I think it's very possible. I mean, there are a lot of different scenarios, and they're kind of it's up to us which of them play out. I don't think anything's set in motion. You know, it really is up to us. You know, there's there's the 
beneficent image of us becoming like Great Britain, you know, an emperor that gave up and turned nicer, if I can say that. And so I think be care- being careful of the stories, just like you were saying, avoiding the isolation, because it's that the, the isolation and the runaway stories that I think make fear so difficult. So it's really a question of making fear more workable. Yeah. I think I'm going to just go with one more and then, and then we'll end with, with Larry's question. And I think that's, that's where maybe where Richard's question about emptiness comes in also, because we can have a perspective that uh, none of the stories have some direct relationship with reality, that there, that there is an aspect in which they are provisional attempts to understand and that they are not absolute truths. And when we get fearful and paralyzed, we're taking them as absolute truths. Yeah. You mentioned hope returning to America, and yeah. I'm aware simultaneously that there's 46% of the electorate who quite possibly is in a state of fear and despair yeah. right now. And um, that we may be the objects of their fear. Yeah. And I, I think it's helpful for us to be mindful of that and yeah. respectful of that. And I don't know, you know, what, what specifically we need to do, but I think we need to yeah. be aware that that's there and not discount yeah. their experience. You know, what seems helpful to me is that, is that when we when we study these emotions deeply in ourselves, fear or anger or sadness or pain, I think as well as uh, joy. And I didn't get to say that uh, one of the great balances for fear is beauty and art and music. <laughs> and that's really, really crucial in, the, in these times. Uh, and so... Uh, when we study these emotions, we, we understand them in a way which I think gives us uh, insight that helps us to intervene. In other words, if we study fear and find that it's based on certain runaway stories that are many levels removed from reality, we may be able to take steps to bring it closer to reality or to name the runaway story if, we're in, you know, if it comes up in our community, let's say. And so I think studying these emotions closely gives us possibilities of, of addressing them. That's what comes to mind first. Yeah. So let's just sit, uh, just sit. I know we could go on like this for another hour or two, and we'll have a chance to really continue uh, tomorrow, both in the morning. Uh, Jeff will be giving a session on anger. We'll be looking more at fear tomorrow evening. Let's just sit for now for another minute or two before we move into silence for the rest of the evening. Letting these questions and energies or insights or whatever has emerged from the evening just be present for you in a kind of something to ferment, develop, to grow. 
we have about 20 minutes for walking meditation and then about uh, half an hour sitting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.